All righty, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek. And uh, if you are visiting us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. It's great to have you here with us. Um, and if you are newer this morning, newer to the church, uh, I just want to say, uh, uh, we first of all, we are, we are glad that you're with us. But also, our hope is that you would not remain a visitor forever, uh, but really that over the course of time, you would be plugged into the church, you would be knit in with other believers, following Christ here in the church, that your your kids would be knit in with other kids. Our hope is that you would be uh, faithfully walking alongside Jesus with us, okay? And so I just want to encourage you uh, to make the most of your time here this morning, make the most of our time together, get to know a few folks, uh, say hello, stop me in the hall and, and say hello, stop by the Welcome Center on your way out, and uh, just take a couple of steps to really, like I said, make the most of our time together this morning. And today... We are going to be working uh, through the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 3. And as a church, so our pattern as a church is to work through books of the Bible. We take it a book at a time and we just work through passage by passage, verse by verse, uh, through the Word of God. And we allow God to set the agenda each Sunday for what we're going to be dealing with as we just work through His Word. Today we are going to be in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be dealing with the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. And so if you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and get it out, open it up to Romans 3. We're going to read our text in order to uh, get our time started this morning. But before we jump in and read the text, I I want to give you a little bit of context for the passage that we're dealing with. I think if we just jump into Romans 3 with no context, uh, it 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 will feel very mysterious to us. Like, what in the world are we talking about, and why are we talking about it, okay? So there's a context for Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. And there's three layers of that context that I want to walk through quickly just so that our heads are in the right place when we actually jump in and then deal with the passage, okay? I think it'll help us to make sense out of it. So the first layer of context we need to understand in Romans 3 is the purpose of the whole letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. So this little passage in Romans 3, it fits inside of a bigger purpose that Paul is trying to accomplish as he writes to the church in Rome. And his overarching purpose in the letter is to knit together Jews and Gentiles in the church under Christ. So he's writing to a church that has believers of different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. Jews and non-Jews. And he wants them to be knit together in love In Christ. And I want to make sure we understand how big of a deal this is. If Paul were writing today. And there was a Palestinian believer. And a Jewish believer. In the church. He would be writing to knit them together in love under Christ. The power of the gospel is incredible. And Paul is writing to those ends in Romans 3. Okay, the second layer of context we need to understand is this specific section of his letter is designed specifically by Paul to help both the Jew 
and the non-Jew understand that we stand under the righteous judgment of God. And because of our sin, we are guilty and in need of his grace. All of us alike. Okay, One of the great purposes of Paul in the first three chapters of Romans, he's writing, the, the first three chapters of Romans are almost all dealing with this very purpose. It is to knit both the Jew and the non-Jew, every single person in the world, under the righteous judgment of God, and in our sin, we actually need Christ. We need God's grace and forgiveness through Christ. Every single one of us does. And Paul is writing in this section of his letter, specifically he's going to be dealing with the Jew, writing to the Jew, that they might understand their need for Christ. Because the reality is, if we're all going to be knit together in love in Christ, we first have to understand our desperate need for Christ. And that's the second layer of context we need to understand. That's the specific context. But the third layer of context, and I think this might even be the most important layer of context for us to understand, is the immediate context, which is the passage that our text today follows. Okay? In our text today, so we're in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8. And what Paul just said at the very end of Romans chapter 2 is incredibly relevant to what he's saying in Romans 3. Because what he starts with in Romans 3, it's a response to an objection that he anticipates from what he just said in Romans 2. He's anticipating his Jewish reader to have an objection. One of those like, but wait, Paul... And he's responding to the objection that he anticipates. And what he just said in Romans chapter 2 is this. In verse 25, he said, To the Jew, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker, which we all are before God, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And then he says this in verse 27, a man who is physically uncircumcised, but who fulfills the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. He says, look, if, if you break the law, break God's law in heart, in deed, in word, in thought, in action, in attitude, in affections, if you break the law of God, you will be judged despite having the law and being circumcised. What he's saying is that the unfaithful Jew will be found guilty under God's righteous judgment. And even the Jews, even those who had circumcision who had the law, who had promises, who had the prophets and all kinds of religious ceremonies, if they are not faithful, if their hearts are not converted by God through faith, they too will be found guilty under the righteous judgment of God. They also need Christ. And Paul anticipates that his Jewish reader will have an objection to what he just said. And the objection that he anticipates is this. Romans chapter 3, 
We'll pick it up in verse 1. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit is there of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will he judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Let's go ahead and pray. And I'd invite you to join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we need your spirit to bring truth and conviction this morning, God. Lord, we we need your spirit to just encourage us, lift us up, God, fix our eyes squarely on you. God, I thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. I thank you, God, for worship. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you that we gather together this morning, God, as those who need Jesus and as those who who have Jesus through faith. God, thank you that you sent your son to hang upon the cross, to to bear the weight and the penalty of our sin, God, that we might be knit together with you first and foremost and with your people, God, by faith in Christ. God, I pray this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be challenged by your word, God. God, we need you. We need your spirit, God. And we pray, Lord, God, that you would be teaching us this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, have you ever read a book before that uh, the author was just like so smart, you get into it and you realize, like, this is going to take me 10 minutes just to read one page. I remember (laughs) when I was in college, like I was just starting to follow Jesus And somebody suggested to me a book by a man named A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I got into this book, and I was not a reader at the time. Like, I was just used to skimming, like, bare minimum, just barely skimming over a a book to get by in school. And as soon as I got into chapter one, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, I was like, oh my goodness, this book, this is going to take me six months to read if I, like, do nothing but read for the next six months, which I was not about to do. And I don't even think it's that long. It's like 150 pages. But like every sentence was so deep and dense. But also every sentence was was full of these like logical twists and turns that were built one after the other in order to lead you as a reader to to the conclusion or to the place where Tozer was trying to take us. To to the knowledge of the holy. I thought, boy, I thought it was going to be easier than this. uh, But it's not. 
And, and the point is, if you miss one of those logical twists and turns that Tozer has for you as a reader, it's like missing your exit on the highway. Okay, you, you realize, oh boy, I missed the boat, I'm heading in the wrong direction, I'm not going to arrive where I'm supposed to arrive. And the way that Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 is a lot like that. Okay, it's logical twists and turns that are built one after another upon each other. And, and if you get off course somewhere, you, you like, it's like missing your exit. Okay, and we don't arrive where Paul is actually trying to take us as readers. And it's almost like a little bit of a maze of logic here in Romans chapter 3. And I don't want us to get lost in the maze. And so what I want to do this morning, as we get into Romans 3, we study it together, I want to try to simplify Paul's line of reasoning here. But then I want us to, to understand, why does this even matter? To us as a church, and how does it apply today? And I think the simplest way to understand the argument that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 3 is to kind of split it into the two halves of the two objections or the two implied objections that Paul is responding to in Romans 3 verses 1 through 8. And I think there are two objections that Paul is pushing back against in Romans 3 1 through 8. And they're both in response to what Paul just finished up saying, the argument he just finished making in Romans chapter 2. Which remember, he's making the case that the Jews are not automatically saved just because they have circumcision, the law, the prophets, and so on. Okay, And the two objections that he's pushing back against are these. Number one, that's not fair. If the Jews are not automatically saved, that is not fair because then God's people have no real advantage. And number two, that's not fair for the Jews to not be automatically saved because God, he's actually been glorified even through their unfaithfulness. Isn't it glory to him that they have been faithless and yet God has remained faithful. See, the fact that the, even the Jews are subject under God's righteous judgment, which is what he just finished explaining at the end of Romans 2. That would have read like a slap to the face. When it, when it says this in, in Romans 2.27, a man who's physically uncircumcised, the, the uncircumcised Gentile who fulfills the law, is going to judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. That is a slap to the face of the Jewish reader. And he anticipates, Paul expects, there will be pushback from what I just said. And the beef that he expects them to have is that it, like if the Jews are still Guilty sinners under the righteous judgment of God, just like everybody else, that's not fair. Because then God's people have no advantage. And that's not fair because even though the Jews have been unfaithful, God's been glorified through their unfaithfulness. Okay? Those are the two objections 
that he's going to press back against and he's going to logically dismantle those two objections that he expects his readers to have. So objection number one, that's not fair because then God's people have no advantage. He anticipates the Jewish reader or, or, or perhaps us as readers are going to hear what he just said in Romans 2 and the first words out of their mouth is, wait a minute, so what advantage does the Jew have? What is the benefit of circumcision? What are we doing here? Why, why did God choose people? Why did God establish the nation of Israel? Why did he give them circumcision? If it doesn't automatically save you or make you right before God, what's the point? Are you telling me that's not good? And for what it's worth, I, I think we all have a little bit of this type of thinking in us, okay? Like if something doesn't inherently by itself, in and of itself, produce salvation, it's so easy for us to like write it off like, oh, then you're saying it doesn't matter at all. It's like, no, no, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. I'm just saying it doesn't automatically produce salvation. You know, I've talked to so many people over the last 18 years of following Christ who, who like talking through baptism, this exact like rub comes all the time where you're trying to help people understand like baptism does not inherently save you because like in our culture, I think there is this like residue, this kind of like, okay, baptism, that's the thing that kind of like makes sure that you're like saved, that, that like you do that, you're good to go. I got baptized. I'm good to go. I'm saved. And you work through it with people, you're like, no, 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 baptism does not save you. Baptism do, like, does nothing to produce salvation inside of a human heart. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it, so it's not important at all. You're like, no, no, that's, no, it's important. It just doesn't in and of itself save you. It doesn't produce salvation. And so it, it's like we struggle, I think, at times... In our minds, it's like we have no category for things that are important but don't produce salvation. I had a roommate in college that really stumbled over this when it came to good works. We had so many conversations where he was like, dude, if, if good works don't save you, then what you're saying is it doesn't matter what you do. No. It does matter what you do. And it will matter for all eternity what you do. But what you do can't save you. It is a work of Christ. It is the work of God that produces salvation in a human heart, in a human soul, in a human life. And Paul's anticipating this tension point with his Jewish readers. And he says, you can't just rest on your religious ceremonies as the source of your salvation. You cannot rest on circumcision or in having the law or being part of a nation through whom prophets were given. You can't rest on that as the source of your salvation. And he anticipates the tension point is that, well, then what advantage does the Jew even have? 
Why be circumcised? And this is how Paul responds in verse 2. It's kind of surprising, I think. He says, the advantage of the Jew is considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. A couple of things really quickly here. Um, one, you might be expecting Paul to have like a multifaceted list of benefits because he kicks it off with first. When we start things with first, there's usually a second. Don't get hung up looking for that. Paul's not going there, okay? Sly dog. He makes it, he builds his he makes his argument feel like it's going to be like a laundry list so we're kind of like body like okay, okay, a lot going on here but then he kind of he just leaves it at one. But I I want to make sure we take a peek ahead just a little bit. So we we cut off our passage here at verse 8. But if you travel down to verse 9, Paul, he's going to answer this question again. But he's going to answer it on the opposite side of the fence this time. Okay? So in verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. Okay? Verse 2, what is the benefit of the Jew? Considerable in every way. Verse 9... Are we as Jews any better? Not at all. And so we we need to understand Paul's response in verse 2 more as a yes and no than just a resounding yes. Okay? There is benefit in many ways. However, are we any better off? Paul will respond, no. No. Not inherently. Okay? He says the Jews have a great advantage because they were people that God revealed himself to and through by his law, through sending of the prophets, through covenants, through promises. And that is a huge deal. It's a big deal. Would you rather be the Egyptians whose hard-hearted Pharaoh brought all kinds of plagues onto their land and to their people? Would you rather be the uncircumcised Philistines who, who like, were clueless about God? No. God revealed himself to the Jews and through the Jews, and that was huge blessing. It is a wonderful thing to have the very word of God. It is a wonderful thing for God to lead you It is a wonderful thing for God to reveal himself to you. But if not met with faith, the benefit is lost. The blessing is forfeited. Just because they had the law, the prophets, the covenants, even promises from God. Paul says those covenants and promises when not met with faith at the individual level. They are ineffectual in the human heart. And it's not God who is unfaithful at that point. When there's brokenness in the relationship between God and his people, it's not God who is unfaithful. It's not God breaking a promise or breaking his covenant. When the individual Jew is found unfaithful and under the judgment of God, that is man being found a liar. 
He says in verse 3, What then, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If some Jews are judged by God, is God unfaithful? Is he being unfaithful to his word? Verse 4, absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. This is a quote that Paul is using to point us to Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, it might be the most famous psalm in the book of Psalms. It is where King David, one of the greatest uh, Jews of all time, he, he had sinned so horribly against God and against people. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, then he had committed murder and covered it up. And this is not like a soap opera. This wasn't like a a storyline. This actually happened in real life with real people, okay? And David does not profess in Psalm 51, where, where Paul is fixing our eyes, moving our eyes, is Psalm 51. And David does not profess in Psalm 51... Oh God, thank you that I am a Jew, that I have circumcision, that I am a part of the nation through whom you sent the prophets, that, that, that we have the covenants and the promises, and so everything is all good here, nothing to see, nothing to worry about. No problem at all. I am a Jew, no issue, no concerns. No, no, no. David cries out to God in Psalm 51, and, and this is where Paul's bringing us in his logical argument. To help us to understand the righteous judgment of God. And David cries out in Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, God. I need your grace. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me against you and you alone. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then this is where Paul quotes David. Okay, He says, you are right when you pass judgment. Let God be righteous when he judges. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty When I was born, I was sinful even when my mother conceived me. What an astonishing text. What astonishing truth from the mouth of David. King David, Israel's man, the the one who sat on the throne of the nation, That God had chosen to work through, to reveal himself through. The one who had the covenant, the promises, promises like nobody else. Who had circumcision, who had the law, who had prophets that served him. And he says, I was guilty when I was born. Be gracious to me, God. Cleanse me from my sin. I've sinned against you, and you are righteous when you judge. So I need your grace. May you give it according to your compassion, according to your faithful love. See, the fact 
that circumcision or, or having the law or prophets, the fact that it doesn't inherently produce salvation in a human heart does not mean there's no benefit. It just means that just like everybody else in the world, you are still dependent on the grace of God. And even King David knew that. And, and when things go sideways, and when there's brokenness in the relationship between man and God, it is not God who is unfaithful. It is not God who is the problem. The problem is me. And God will be found faithful, and every man will be found a liar. Every mouth will be shut at the judgment seat of God. If there's brokenness in your relationship with God today, you've got to understand, you, you, you have to be willing to look in the mirror and take responsibility and ownership and not point the finger elsewhere. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Are you satisfied with your relationship with God? Are you deeply satisfied in your relationship with God? You will not do yourself any favor to point the finger elsewhere. If you are missing that life-giving joy in the Lord. I was thinking and just praying through a few things this morning about how so often, so what's going on in my heart, and I don't know if you guys are like this at all, but you know in the fall when the season changes, uh, you get like the sniffles or you get like a little low-grade fever going, and you're like, oh, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. It's just a change of seasons. And I think, like, in one sense, that's probably true. Like, that's semi-accurate. Uh, but we're running like a little low-grade fever, and there's something that is going to prevent us from kind of being at our best. Uh, but I'm, like, very hesitant. For whatever reason, I'm, like, very hesitant to call it sickness. I'm like, I'm not I'm not sick. <laughs> Fine, fine, just a little sniffles, just a little change of the season, okay? I think a lot of times in our walk with the Lord, we're running a little low-grade fever. It's like our relationship isn't quite synced up. We're not quite like in that joyful life. We're not quite satisfied in our walk with God. There's a little, like a little itch that just doesn't feel like you can quite scratch it. And we kind of float around, we kind of wander around with that low-grade fever in our walk with God. But we're like, but I, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. No problem. Nothing to see here. And we have our reasons. We have these things that we can kind of point at that it's like, it's, well, it's the fault of this, this circumstance or that circumstance or this season or that season or whatever it might be. But I think we're not doing ourselves any favor when we won't deal with the issue and just hold up the mirror and meet it head on and ask for God's gracious 
help. I love Psalm 51. I love Psalm 51 because David, it's like no holds barred. He's, he's finally at a point where he's just stripped away of his like excuses or whatever else might be going on. He's bare before the Lord and he's like, God, I need, I need your grace. I need your love, your forgiveness. Come. And I think in our walk with God, we have to realize God is faithful and God is eager to give rich, deep, meaningful life to each one of you, to each one of us. And he wants to give us that life. So let's not point the finger like the problem in our relationship with God is somewhere out there. It sits in our own heart. And praise God that he's gracious and eager to give us life when we just turn to him. And we can confess our sin. And we can confess these little idols that we cherish and hold on to and come to him. God is not unfaithful. That's not the problem. So God is dealing with this objection from the Jews, he's, he's dealing with this, or Paul is dealing with this objection he anticipates from the Jews. He's, he's dealing with this idea that, that just because something doesn't inherently produce salvation, it's, it's almost like it's meaningless. And he says, no, 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 no. You have the revealed word of God. And God is faithful and will be faithful. And every man will be found a liar. And after Paul deals with that objection, what Paul does is he pivots to the next objection that he anticipates, which is this. Just because God has been glorified through the unfaithfulness of the Jews and his faithfulness to them, it doesn't mean that the Jews will be automatically saved. He's dealing with the objection that it's not fair for God to punish the sin of the Jews because God has been glorified even through Jewish unfaithfulness. And we'll explain a little bit more about where this objection comes from, why it's in there, why Paul's dealing with it. But I just want us to read Paul's logical reasoning here in verses 5 through 8. He says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Now we're going to deal with this, but this objection, first of all, it sounds very familiar to us because... What Paul says here, it, it sounds a lot like an argument that like non-Christians, for example, would make or, or that my roommate back in college was making to me as they're trying to wrestle through and make sense out of the gospel. Like if God is actually gracious towards sin and if his grace abounds when we sin, well then what's going to prevent people from sinning? Why not just sin more so that God's grace abounds? That's kind of like what Paul's argument here sounds like in verses 5 through 8. But that's not the context of what he's saying, okay? It's not exactly what's going on here. Paul, he's addressing the Jew in the church. 
And what he's dealing with is the lie that even faithless Jews are going to be saved. And the faulty logic that it's built on, it's built on a couple of premises and then a conclusion that breaks down. Okay? And I want to be clear here. The reason Paul, Paul is pushing against this is that God truly had been very faithful and has been very faithful to the nation of Israel in the midst of lots of rebellion and sin by the nation of Israel against God. And he has been glorified as he has remained faithful to them even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And in some ways, their unfaithfulness and God's continued faithfulness to them has resulted in the glory of God. Okay? But there's a a logical breakdown that Paul is trying to deal with here and push against. So there's a couple premises. Premise number one, okay, that's built into this text. It goes unspoken, but the, the premise here that goes unspoken in this passage is that the primary purpose of our lives is to glorify God. That's a true premise. And the Jews understood that. They understood the glory of God is supreme in life. Okay? Premise number two, even our unfaithfulness as Jews has only served to highlight God's glory as he's been faithful to us as a nation. That's also true. Now, there has been blasphemy among the Gentiles against God because of their unfaithfulness. But there's also been glory, glory given to God because he has been faithful even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Their premise... I think is accurate that that the adultery, the idolatry of Israel and God's just continued faithfulness to them to work through this tiny little nation to protect this tiny little nation to send his prophets through this tiny little nation to send even his son Jesus through this tiny little nation. It has abounded to God's glory. That is a true premise. But then here's where the logic breaks down. It's in the conclusion. Okay? And their conclusion is this. If our lives are to glorify God, and God's faithfulness to the Jews, to Israel as a nation, even in the midst of their sin, has brought about his glory, then why would I still be judged as a sinner? Why should I still individually have to face God's righteous judgment for my sin? And Paul says, using that logic, why don't you just take it one step further and say what people claim we already say as Christians, which is, let's just go ahead and do evil, because through evil, God is glorified. His grace abounds. And rather than making some like really elaborate, well-articulated case against that line of reasoning, Paul, he, he's like, I'm not even going to validate that with a response. Uh, your condemnation is just deserved. We cannot think like that. 
It, it, is, it is just like the line of reasoning that says, if sin, or if in our sin God's grace abounds, then what are we to say? Should we just keep on sinning? No. No. By all means, no. Your condemnation is deserved. And I love that Paul, he, he, like, he doesn't logically deal with it. He, like, he doesn't actually take the time to really like, logically go through and dismantle the faulty thinking here. Uh, and I resonate with this as a parent because, so as a parent, uh, you have this place in your kids' lives where you like, represent the Lord to them, right? So you are the one who brings correction. When, when your kids sin, it's not like somebody else's responsibility to, to lovingly correct them and point them back to Jesus. It's your responsibility to bring that correction, to speak into it. And, and sometimes that means there's a punishment for the sin that they have committed, okay? Now, as a parent, when I bring that punishment to my kids in response to their sin, uh, how often do you think they're like, honestly, Dad, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. Thanks for putting me back in my place and pointing me to Jesus. Really appreciate that. And I think that punishment was fairly deserved. Um, <laughs> waiting for, we're waiting for situation number one for that to occur, okay? But usually, they, they will come back with like these reasons why it's not actually fair to receive punishment for the sin that they've committed. They've got all kinds of different justifications and reasons. And we will try to like work with them and just reason with them and walk through like, here's why this actually makes sense. Here's why this is actually fair. Here's why it is fair and appropriate that you are receiving the punishment that you're receiving. But at some point, their, their arguments become so ridiculous and outlandish where you're like... I'm done. I like. I'm not. I'm not going to validate that with a response. Here's the deal. You're just guilty, and it's deserved. Your punishment's deserved. And I think that's where Paul has gotten to. And it's funny because he's like worked up with like the argument he anticipates. Like I, I don't think that somebody's actually in front of him, lobbing these uh, ridiculous claims at him. But he's like already sweaty, just anticipating this is what they're going to say. This is how they're going to respond. This is the, the faulty logic they're going to try to throw at me, and I, like, I can't deal with it. Here's the deal. Your condemnation is deserved. You're just wrong. And what Paul does for the Jew who is humble, who is listening, and who hears what he says, is this. This is really important for us to catch, okay? He's stripping away the covering that they hide behind. What Paul is doing, and I want to explain this because I, I think this is so important for us to grasp. What Paul is doing through the first three chapters of Romans, through his argument towards the Jews, he is stripping away the covering that they hide behind in their sin. The Jews had religious ceremonies, they had prophets, they had circumcision, they had the law, they had all these things, okay, that were enabling them, their, their pride in who they were and their sense that they were already right before God simply because of where they were born, who they were born to, their pride in that, it was like covering that, that covered over their ability to see their need 
for transformation and their need for God's grace. And what it allowed them to do was to, to continue to walk in sin, but not have any sensitivity towards it. They had a covering that just allowed them to walk in sin and rebellion and rejection of God. And not sense it. And Paul's stripping away everything that they could possibly hide behind. I think the most dangerous place we can find ourselves is to be sinning. And to have covering. To feel like. It's somebody else's fault. So when, when, when we can blame somebody for our sin or our bad attitudes, our like unrighteous heart, it's like covering. And it is so dangerous. When we have reasons for these little, little pieces of our flesh that we hold on to, it's like covering. It desensitizes us to our sin. Okay, there are, we talked about like how we can run a little low-grade fever in Christianity. I think most of the time what we're running is a little low-grade fever. There are these things that are preventing us from like real, rich, deep, meaningful, satisfied relationship with God that isn't like doing cocaine. Okay, it's like the little areas of our flesh, but we just keep walking in them because we've got covering. I've got a reason to be bitter, and it's actually your fault, not mine. I've got a reason to be angry. It's actually your fault, not mine. It's covering. When we have covering, it is so dangerous. This is where, like, husbands will treat their wives horribly, because it's your fault, and I know why it's your fault, and it's not mine. It's covering. Or why wives will treat their husbands horribly. Or why men and women will walk in sexual sin. There's reason. There's covering. When we have covering for our sin, it is a dangerous place. Because our hearts, we lose our sensibilities to God. This is when people have like all kinds of relational baggage and issues. That's not healthy. That's, that's not okay. It's not good, but as long as there's a reason for it, it's like covering. It's not my fault, it's your fault. And when we feel covered in our sin, like it is amazing how confidently I can just keep walking in it. And I don't sense the shame of my sin. I don't sense the guilt of my sin. And I can be so creative in justifying my sin. And I think where it starts for me is I never call it sin. Just don't call it sin. That's where my covering starts. It's not sin. It's just a problem. And it's actually somebody else's fault. I have a bunch of idols standing between me and a rich relationship with God, but they're not idols. They're just things I like to do. As long as we can point the finger, it's covering for our sin. 
Paul is stripping away our covering. And he's been doing it the entire time through the first three chapters of Romans. And do you want to know why? I think number one, because our covering, it will not stand, it will not hide us on the day of judgment. If you go back to Genesis 3, see the impulse that we have in our sin. When we sin, it, it, it is to get covering. And Paul's stripping away the faulty, worthless covering that we have, which is excuses, blaming others, religious ceremonies, external religious things. He's stripping all of that away. He says, that covering will not stand before a holy, righteous judge. That covering won't hide you on the day of God's judgment. God is going to judge. Like, the, the day that... See, imagine... I was thinking about this. Like, imagine if, if the FBI came and started looking into my life. And they said, we're actually going to hold you accountable for every infraction of the law that you have committed... Like, I consider myself a relatively law-abiding citizen. Again, I'm not, like, out doing cocaine. I'm not, like, I haven't murdered anybody this week, uh, even this year. Like, pretty good track record. But I'm like, man, if they actually dealt with every infraction, like, oh, that would be terrifying. But then, like, think about the law of God that speaks to our hearts, every word Every deed, every thought, every attitude. And Paul is trying to strip away the foolish covering that we hide behind. That makes ourselves feel like we are righteous. The covering of our own blame shifting. The covering of our own excuses. He says it's not going to work. No faithless Jew... And no faithless churchgoer will be able to stand before God and hide behind the covering of our church attendance. We will not be able to hide behind the covering of the faith of our spouse. We will not be able to hide behind the covering of our baptism. We will not be able to hide behind the covering of circumcision or the law. We will not be able to hide behind the covering of feeling like I'm a pretty good person. We will not be able to hide behind the covering of my good deeds certainly outweigh my bad deeds. We won't. Paul's stripping it away because he knows on the day of judgment when you stand before a holy righteous judge, it won't hide you in your sin. But he's not just stripping us to leave us naked. He's not just stripping us to make us feel ashamed and guilty and worthless. He is stripping us so he can point us to better covering. That's what Paul is doing. Paul is pointing us ahead to the day when we will be covered with Christ's righteousness. He is pointing us ultimately to the covering we need, which is Christ. And every single person on the planet needs the righteous covering of Jesus Christ. We need to be clothed in garments of white, garments of righteousness. 
And Paul, he is going to get there. I promise you he will. Okay? In just a couple weeks. And we're going to celebrate that day like Easter when he does finally arrive at Jesus. But for today, we're going to close with communion. And we're going to close by singing to God and to one another. And remember the righteous covering that we actually have in Jesus Christ. He is the covering that we need. He is the only covering that will stand on the day of judgment when we come before the Lord. Okay? And, and we receive that covering by faith. By God's grace through faith. And so as we take communion this morning, I, like, I want to point you ahead to Christ. God wants to point you ahead to Christ. God wants to point us as a body of believers to Jesus Christ because we have his righteousness even today through faith in Jesus. And in the elements of communion, we're reminded of what God has done to deliver us our salvation through Jesus Christ. There's no covering that could stand before God but that in Christ. And so in the bread, we remember the body of Christ broken for us. In the cup, we remember his blood shed and poured out for us. We remember that we are covered our sins are forgiven. They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west, but only in Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by the law, not by circumcision, not by baptism, not by anything else. Okay? And so if you're a believer in Christ, I want to invite you to join us today as we take communion together as a body. Uh, the elements for communion are under the seat in front of you. You can go ahead and grab those now. If you're not a believer in Christ, I, I just want to... First of all, say communion is not yet for you, but our prayer, our hope is that you would be in Christ and that you would join us at the Lord's table, be covered by Christ through faith. Okay? If you don't understand what that means, if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't know how can I actually have my sins forgiven in Jesus, ask someone, ask me, ask one of our pastors, ask someone who you came with today. If you are not baptized, that is a big deal. It matters deeply. That's not what saves you. It does not produce salvation. But when we come to the Lord's table, we are coming as God's people, and baptism is what marks us as God's people. And so if you're not baptized, I just want to encourage you today. You need to be baptized. Pursue baptism. If you are in Christ, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you, you need to pursue baptism. Okay? Be marked in the family of God as we come together for the family meal in communion. I'm going to pray. Then I'll invite you to take a few minutes at your seats with one another and uh, thank the Lord for communion. Then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, God, thank you that you sent Christ to save us from our sin, God, to deliver us the, the salvation, the grace that we need that we could never hope to have on our own, God. I pray that this time of communion, God, would be rich and satisfying to our souls, God. Help us to, to really feed upon you, to be richly satisfied in spirit, God, as we remember the work of Jesus and our salvation that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.